All right. So welcome, everyone. So I am delighted to uh, to introduce uh, Christoph to the world with this wonderful project, Maugu Saga Yaros, uh, a digital edition of, I won't read the entire shelf mark of this manuscript, um, but it's it's an old Icelandic manuscript. It's, it's a massive XML project, honestly. It's been um, uh, quite enjoyable to, to supervise this thesis project. Um, but without further ado, I, I think, I think I'll just let you get going, Christoph. So you could, you know, uh, uh, take over the reins here, and we'll we'll save some time towards the end for any kind of questions or commentary. And um, I think you're also going to do a demo, which is going to be probably the most enjoyable, um, uh, you know, addition to the to the project. So, okay, so take it away. Yeah. Then welcome everyone to my thesis theater. It's about Mag Magus Sagarial or the Saga of Jarl Magus. Um, it's probably one of the most well-attested Ritter saga of the Middle Ages in the North. Um, it's a genre that's been long neglected by scholars and but has seen a recent revival in the last, last 10 to 20 years. And one of the witnesses is the, like uh, Professor Patterson already mentioned, the AM467 17 beta quarto manuscript of which I did a digital edition. And just to give a short overview of what I'm going to talk about, first I want to talk about a bit, to give you a bit of context, the origins of the genre, the content, the motives, the themes that are in there, then a short plot synopsis of the saga per se. Then I talk a bit about the manuscript, the authorship, where it comes from, where it originated, a bit of its history. Then the digital edition, different layers that's in there and how that's encoded. A bit about the translation I did. And in the end, if there's still time and interest, I will do a live demonstration of some encoding in Minota bits. Let's get started with the genre as such. Um, the genre of Ritter's saga or the saga of knights, chivalric sagas, uh, uh, encompass a quite a range of texts starting from translation from the French, um, moving over into original Scandinavian creations. The Saga of Knights um, comes from the sagas itself. It uh, is mentioned there in various manuscripts as such, and uh, ranging from the translation from the French, where I will go into a bit more in detail later, um, through things like the Saga of Magus. Um, there are two different kinds or categories of Ritter Saga. The primary, they're a bit older. They're pure translations of the original French. Um, and then there's the secondaries that merge together some Scandinavian family sagas, uh, the Icelandic saga, and the uh, French romances. And both are referred to as Laia Saga since it is well, it was perceived that this is not real. This is not a real family saga. It plays in a faraway country. And there's sometimes and often quite magic in there. But it all started with the uh, gentleman on our left. It's uh, Hakon the Old, or Hakon Hakonson, king of Norway. And he started his reign with a civil war against a pretender, the Sigurd Ridenbun, um, which he, of course, killed, like they did. And um, about 13 years later, there was a second attempt on his life and his throne by Skul Baderson, and Hakon had him killed. 
and after about 46 years of reign, he died in 2063. And during his reign, he did the one thing that he was become famous for. He started translating old saga, uh, the chivalric sagas from the French by his clergy and scribe around the royal court. There is some speculation why he did it for fun, a display of power in any case, or to school his court about the obligations of his ridders or his nobles towards the king and the crown. Um, the contents of all these sagas, the, um, like I mentioned before, the Rida saga and the older sagas, or the Icelandic family sagas, are both perceived to be not real, and they knew that. Um, and they are written in the at least the secondary in the style of family sagas. So, for example, they contain death, betrayal, romantic love, magic, and of course the knights that which they are named after. One example of such a knight, even though he's not called that in the saga, is Magus. He is popular and a knowledgeable and right uh, wise ruler. He's quite good at fighting and has a, of course, a highborn wife. How else should it be? Um, mentioned always is courtesy of this riddery. They're polite in greetings. They're always just rulers and, of course, they obediently serve the, their lord and the lord, both in this case. Uh, something to note is the role of woman in all the sagas. In the family sagas, they're usually described as beautiful, proud, cunning, clever. And in the primarily the secondary the sagas, they're a bit diminished to being only described as beautiful or highborn. So like um, as um, only what the man needs her for. Um, on to the actual saga of Maugus. It was probably the most popular of the Icelandic sagas with 89 different manuscripts attesting to that. And I think there, at least officially 89, there are a few more that are suspected to also belong to Maugus Sagar. Um, it comes from two, well, quite certainly comes from two French sources, the Renaud de Montebon and Le Pilgrimage de Charlemont. Um, they are both quite interwoven because in the first there's a chess match which our uh, will tell later is also mentioned Maugus and the pilgrimage of Charlemagne or Karl in German is uh, also quite similar to that what it happens in Maugus um, but it has a lot of north influences for example um, Maugus is a mage or a wizard that can do a lot of things he is for example, disguise themselves as Hin Halfimadr, or in English, the two-colored man, with, uh, which means two-faced, and is described as a cat-eyed man with uh, the appearance of two different faces. One half is snow white, the other is dusky red. Um, that reminds of other sagas like Kalmungus saga, where cat eyes are accredited to magicians. On the other half, the two-faced man should uh, with the two faces is a good reminder of the goddess of the underworld hail as she is uh, described in the snorri edda um, also the transplantation from france where the original sagas took place to, Germ to nowadays germany like saint-demis or paris 
uh, what he translated to warms and we'll talk about it later and place in Saxland, so the old Saxony um, along the Rhine as mentioned in other sagas like Thiedrich saga. Um, there are two recessions because there are a lot of manuscripts and we can draw some conclusions from that. There are the shorter and older that reminds more of the primary Sarita saga. It's really short and to the point and there's a way longer and even and younger edition where it's talks more about, uh, gives more details about battles, has some more things in the end, which I will talk about in a moment. Um, and the first edition, or the, the edition that exists is Gunlauga Thorntonson. It's uh, not our manuscript. It's, it's neither the oldest nor the closest to the original. We can see it, the original cover on the left side from 1858, so quite, quite a while back. Um, but it's the most complete manuscript we have. The manuscript I chose to do is uh, AM467. It's older and very close to original, presumably, but it's very fragmented, as we will see later. Now to the actual plot synopsis. I start with the main cast. We have Jarl Amundi and his five children. Four of them are Man, Wigfralder, Dirkwalder, Markwalder, Atwalder, and his daughter, Matilda. Um, Matilda is married to our protagonist, Marcus, Maugus, and yeah, as I mentioned before, is a skilled magician and shapeshifter, which is not described as weird in the story. An opposition to them is the Emperor Karl and his wife, Amengra, and uh, Jarl Ubi as one of his major Jarls. The locations are Strasbourg, which is nowadays Strasbourg in France, and Venitsburg or Worms in Germany. All begins with the defeat uh, where Rockwalder defeats the emperor in chess, and the emperor kills Rockwalder in anger. With revenge, Winkwalder sets out to avenge his brother, like he's supposed to do. Then the two clans clash for a while, and there's a lot of bloodshed. And in the end, Maugus brings back peace to the both families with his, let's call it skills and magical and quite deceitful ideas. In the younger edition of the, of the saga, there are the so-called Thatir. These are small unconnected sequels that tell primarily of King Heinrich of England, which was a close ally of Magus. And we will see in a moment what that all entails. Because we have, um, I split up everything that comes in the parts of the manuscript that survive in this, with this shelf mark into seven episodes that are sometimes connected, sometimes there's a lot in between of text because the manuscript pages are not connected and there's missing some parts in between. But we can draw from other uh, editions and see what should be in there. So it all begins with. Uh, King Isungur that sees a vision of giants while fighting against Markwather. He sees four giants holding up the sky, and it's quite trippy what, how that is described. The next one is uh, Markwather and his brother-in-law, Magus, talk and travel a lot. It feels more like a connecting chapter because people have to get from A to B for the story to progress. Um, then there is a big cut, and uh, in the third episode, Margus uh, fakes his death, quite convincingly, I have to say, but that plays three years later than the, uh, the episodes before that. 
Um, and that happens a lot in this episode. So Margus is very sick. King sends Ulfer, who really doesn't believe Margus is going to die. But Mar it's a very convincing scene with being described that Margus is lying there and can only whisper. And um, Ulfer whispers in his ear, where are you going? And Margus responds with, away. And that multiple times. In, uh, after he supposedly died, there's uh, in the fourth episode a discussion between his uh, now widowed wife, Matilda, and Rekwalder, yeah, her brother, where Maugus should be buried. Um, Rekwalder thinks he should be buried in Strandsburg. Um, she thinks he should be carried around in a boat and sent to Denmark so everyone can pay their respects. Um, and they got to get to the conclusion that he is to be sent away and the others are not happy about that. Um, the fifth episode plays in Denmark with the two-faced man, which is Maugus, as we know, um, because King Einstein of Denmark has a problem. He has two big Vikings who are threatening um, him with either pay us or we marry your daughter and take her away. So he pays them off every year and loses a lot of money this way. Then Maugus came and comes with his friend and uh, the king offers if they can rid him of these two Vikings who are pestering him, he will marry his daughter to him. Quite funnily enough. Um, episode six and seven are closely connected and are Fatir, so these little stories at the end. They start with a fight of Baldwin against Priamus and it's quite a detailed and bloody fight with how spears clash, how they hit each other, how heads roll. Um, yeah, there's a small gap of there are only two or three lines missing in between. And um, Gaithrider kills Priamus in battle um, while Priamus is riding an elephant. Why is riding an elephant is a good question, I asked myself, but the text clearly states multiple times it's an elephant. and. That's a topic that needs to be discussed in other time. Now, moving on to the actual manuscript. Um, the manuscript has the shelf mark AM, which is short for Agnus Magnusson. That's the institute that's holding it. It's the number 567. It's actually where the shelf, uh, it used to be where the number of shelf where it lies. And there are multiple manuscripts that belong in the same, that came in the same box when they recovered it. And the 17th of those is uh, bound between some wooden blocks. And they're the second one, the beta. Um, so that's how the shelf marks are constructed. A quarter at the end describes the size. It's a quarter size of the manuscript. So it currently is, um, you can on the right side see probably the best page of the manuscript, it's very clean. Um, currently is in the Arnie Magnusson Institute for Icelandic Study in Reykjavik in Iceland. And uh, anyone going there could probably request to visit and look at it. It um, was first catalogued in 1887. And, and Icelook took over the manuscript as, an, as part of the National Treasure on March 26 of 1992. It was all written in one hand by an unknown scribe in one of the very few production centers in Iceland. Um, around the year 1390 and 1410. Could some scholars have suggested it happened 100 years later? Um, thank you, Professor President, for posting the link. 
of uh, to everyone can look at these images they are free freely available on the internet um there are three leaves in this part of the manuscript we can reconstruct from pages one or from leaf one and two leaf is a fancy philological term for a page so a physical page there's a front and the back side um can tell it's about 20 to one uh, 17 centimeters in diameters it's all written in a single column it's ordered in the same section number like um, the edition i talked before am 152 um, and it was all written without any scratching or pricking that's the practice of dry scratching little lines to be able to write very straight um, there's left space for rubrication we see an example later that's when um, you all have seen these fancy big letters in color um, the scribe usually leaves space for them so someone else can fill them in later um, every one of these pages is cut somehow and is missing some piece um, they are all pierced um, we will look at that in detail in a few minutes and and all pages are dirty and stained up to being nearly unrecognizable. Here we can see all the pages in order. You can see they are of all different diameters and all different faults. Um, the one R is, is uh, recto and V is for verto. So it's the front and the back side of the same leaf. Um, and we will go over through some of the specialities of those, starting from the first one, the first front and back side, there's missing about a third on the right. As you can see, it's not clear, really clear cut um, on the, and has some folding marks uh, on the top, uh, bottom left picture. You can see there's actually has been folded and the line has been, some characters are not that readable anymore because it was folded for a long time. Um, above that, there's, you can see the, the actual describe was quite orderly and um, writing everything starting at the same point, but here is missing exactly a two-story tall thorn that should have been filled in at some point, but there's no traces of color. So best guess is it was never filled in. And the final picture right of the text is uh, there's some stitching marks, probably from sewing it to something. We'll see more of them later. It was not in the original manuscript because it goes through the text and it doesn't make sense at that places. Uh, to recto and to verso are both really nice pages. The clearest one we have, especially to recto, um, only the last line is cut up in half. So there is missing one line. Some things are not that readable, but in all in all, it's a really good condition. Um, whoever cut the last line in half, I I have a word with. Um, some specialities is uh, an imperfection in the actual animal skin that was used. You can see in the middle on both pages, um, but that was there before the scribe got to it. The scribe just stopped at the point and continued afterwards. Um, and at the bottom of the of two recto, uh, you can see there's a, a empty spot where there's some funny characters in in front and then in the back. Um, I think there was just a mistake and they signed it as there's nothing to fill in here. Um, now to the most horrible page we actually have, uh, three recto. Um, that was quite 
something to work with. You can see on the left side, there's something, the, some of the actual skin has flaked off. So there's nothing to recover. Some letters are faded. There are really bad folding marks. There's about a third or fourth missing from the top. Um, it's really hard to just get to read that and reconstruct it. Um, the other page uh, on the other side is better. Um, and there we can actually discern, if you look on the left page and the cutting, how it was cut and where the pre uh, sewing marks are and the holes, you can best guess it was sold, uh, sold to some board as a book cover or something of that ilk. Um, on the right side, um, but it's written in the same hand. Um, even though it looks a bit different, it's clearly the same hand. Um, on the right, top uh, bottom right, we can see uh, one bad part um, of the actual how bad it's gotten. And um, this is an approximation of how it would look under, under uh, ultraviolet light. That's one of the tricks to get it more readable. And uh, I did this uh, though digitally. And with both pixels, you can sooner or later discern what's written there. Um, I've written uh, in the facsimile edition down there uh, what it's supposed to be. And uh, if you look closely, you can discern that. Now onwards to the actual digital edition I did. Um, digital edition is supposed to represent all aspects of manuscript. That means um, the a word by word representation of everything that's on the literal manuscript. Um, there's split in different layers, which we will come to in a minute. Um, that includes all orthographic errors, scribal forms, supposed to be machine readable, how that is possible, we will talk about later. Um, so it can be displayed for scholars in different layers or just some information that I needed. Um, here's a, we start at the bottom. On the left side is what layer it is, and the right side is an example. So we start at the bottom at the manuscript, and I've chosen one line here to represent that. We don't have access to the manuscript, or it's usually not that convenient to fly to Iceland to look at a few lines. So we get high-resolution pictures. Um, the first layer we have is the facsimile layer. It's supposed to represent everything that's on the page character by character. So every mistake, every quirk, every character is closely modeled as possible with current technology. Um, every cutout thing, every imperfection in the page should be noted there. Um, above this is the diplomatic layer that normalizes a lot of characters. So every D in every form is converted to a normal D. Every abbreviation is expanded. Now we go into that in detail in a few minutes. Then we have the normalized layer, which normalizes everything to a certain standard. So a student could actually read that with a standard dictionary. And then optionally, there is a translation, which I also did. It's not mandatory for digital edition, though even though that now gets into the newest version of Minota. So we start at the bottom at the facsimile layer. It's really as close as possible to the source, and we will see that later in some detail. All symbols, all letter, all diacritics. Diacritics are marks that are made below or above letters. All abbreviation, all punctuation, all paleographic information, like here's something unreadable, or here's something spilled, or some, someone corrected something afterwards and also all eligible text or characters, if there are any, and we had some. 
how this is all encoded is usually in Unicode. This is going to get a bit technical now, but don't worry, we will get through that. Uh, Unicode is a way of encoding characters. It encompasses about 150 characters, 150,000 characters of about 160 modern historic scripts from all over the world, including symbols, emojis, everything you can type up. Um, it's split into so-called um, areas. We, if we look at this table um, on the right, there's sadly only in German because it was not available in English. Um, what area is occupied by what? And if we start at zero zero at the top left, that's the normal Latin letters and symbols. And all that's contained in that area is on the top right, uh, bottom right, represented. And you should recognize most of these characters. Um, that goes on to different uh, areas, and you can expand that to. It's quite a lot what's in there. What what's really nice is the uh, private use area, starting at A0, uh, going to F8. Um, little note: that's not in decimal. This is in hexadecimal, so we count from one to F, not one to ten. So we can space in a bit more. Um, and this private use area is used by, for example, the medieval Unicode font initiative, or quotes MUFI. Uh, I used version four. That's a nonprofit working group that develops uh, or aims to um, encode characters that are used in historical scripts, mostly Latin and Europe-based, um, that are not in standard Unicode, but are needed. Uh, they operate under the uh, Creative Commons, share like, credit by license, which means if you want to use that, you have to share your project, have to accredit them and share your project under the same license. So you have to make it public or open source, like some would call it. Uh, in the top uh, bottom left, you can see characters that are actually encoded in MUFI, uh, the tall F, the trionian at, the crossed K, the slashed H is actually from Unicode, but a crossed H is not just to there are fine differences in their characters that are not yet in Unicode, but they are important to encode for us. Um, after we have encoded everything, we move on to the diplomatic layer, where we expand paragraphs, which are symbols that represent little words, and abbreviations. For example, the fancy P expands to a pro. It's just a shorthand for writing that, or the trionin is an OCK or an AND in English. So you don't have to write AND all the time. You just make a shorthand. Or BORG, the word for BURG or CASTLE. Um, and there comes a difference. The slashed H will be uh, expanded to HAN, HIM, uh, or HE. And the crossed H is HANS, so HIS, the possessive. So it's quite important to make a distinction there and have a different character encode that. Same with that, that's and the uh, crossed K is Konungur or King. What's also done in the diplomatic layer is the normalization of characters. So it's a, if it's a slash D or slanted D or just this slanted D, it's all in the diplomatic layer, it's all a D. All um, accent marks are removed. The big F is just an F. I and J are a bit tricky because they are used differently at different points and have to be exchanged depending on the use case. Uh, U is a U or a V. You have to decide that. An R rotundra, which is attached to characters, a big R and a small R are all normal Rs. A big S and a small S is also S. A T rotundra is also a T. 
a tall small character n and a small n of n dots are removed and sometimes the trionin at does not mean and but really a z sometimes um, all scribal errors are removed but annotated as such as corrections from us because when we can prove it's really a error we correct it in this layer and annotate it as such uh, missing words are supplied we are used mostly am 490a which is close to this manuscript um, but also incomplete in different parts um, the punctuation comes from Thorner's son's edition I showed before. Um, and the third thing is a bit more complex superscript letters, like a, a above a character uh, moved into the word. Um, the superscript T is a T with some characters more or less. That's not that consistent. The Ur, Ra, and Us abbreviation will be expanded. And then suspension, truncation, and terminals are also expanded, like the nasal stroke for above a character to mean an N or an N, or if sometimes it's just a duplication, if they didn't want to write the same character twice, they put a dot above that. So a small, lot of little parts. Until we finally come to the normalized layer, which uh, is probably one of the biggest things to do after encoding everything, because we have first have to decide if we want to normalize everything for internal criteria or external. And I decided for external, um, the Dictionary of Old Norse Prose. That's part of the uh, Amman Knudsson collection um, of the Department of Nordic Study and Linguistics at the University of Copenhagen. They aim to standardize every word from Old Norse, be it Icelandic, Nor um, Old Norwegian, Old Swedish, everything back to, every, to around the year 1200. Um, so, and they have come quite a far away and have nearly encoded every word we can find, even though I found some that still need encoding. So um, after the, having everything in the diplomatic layer, you have to go through every word by word of all the 2,182 words that are in our manuscript, um, find the corresponding part in the dictionary, and then lemmatize it, stemmatize it, I will talk about it in a minute. Uh, and write it down as a normalized form like you would find it in the dictionary. So it's yeah, quite literally normalized. Um, there are 486 different headwords, so like the one you find in the dictionary in 876 different forms. Um, a word about encoding is uh, Minota, the medieval uh, project for as uh, for Old North, I think I will talk about it in a minute, what that is, um, has a handbook that describes how it will be encoded. Everything should be machine readable and then convertible afterwards into whatever you like. If it's print, if it's an interactive web application or quite interesting nowadays is um, with linguistic analysis and digital humanities. But with enough examples, you could, exa for example, look at how verbs developed over the centuries if enough texts are annotated. The uh, yeah, movie is used to encode words that are uh, characters that are a bit difficult. And everything is done in XML, ex the extendable markup language. And before we can move on, we have to um, quickly get a few basics for that so we can understand the rest. Um, 
everything in XML is encoded in tags, but uh, everything start, that starts with a lesser than sign and ends with a greater than sign, like in the closing element, starts with uh, the uh, lesser than signs, then comes W and uh, the big, uh, greater than signed, and the tag closes in the end with a slash before the name of the tag. And everything in between is everything that belongs to the tag. The W tag, for example, encodes a word, which means everything between the opening and the closing tag is a word. And we will see a few different examples just to get the basics. Um, another thing is an empty element, which means it's an element that, for example, here is the page break or PB. It's something that does not contain anything. It's just a dead place in the document there the page breaks and the new page starts. Then um, here's an example of encoding one word on one page. We start the tag by opening, I think it will get the annotation tool. We start the tag by using a P for opening a paragraph. Then we say we have a page break onto page one recto. And we have a line break onto line one. So at this part in the manuscript, we are on page one recto line one. And then we have a word word with the lemma sin and some additional information we will come to later uh, and then we offer up a choice choice between these two elements there's the choice that we offer the whoever reads this document up um, we have the minota me is for minota we have the facsimile edition the diplomatic and the normal one all closing and uh, opening and closing in the same line and in between we have the different encoded the different meanings. So in the menus, in the facsimile edition, we have Sina with a tall S. In the diplomatic edition, we remove the tall S and have a small S. And in the normalized edition, like you find it in a dictionary, there's an accent on the I. So we encoded all three layers with XML, how it's supposed to be. Just clear this real quick. Um, a bit about stematization and lemmatization. Um, lemmatization is getting the word into what you, how you would find it in the dictionary, and stematization describes what the word actually, in which form it is found here. So we start uh, again at the top with uh, the word tag. Sorry, um, the word tag. And get the W tag for word. So this starts the word boundary. Then the lemma, describe the lemma as an attribute. And then the MSA stands for morphosyntactical analysis, which just means what grammatical form it is. And then behind that, there are four parts in this case. That's uh, the first, the X stands for the word class. It's a determiner and the possessive determiner. The G is for what gender it is. In this case, it's feminine. Then the number, it's singular, and the case is accusative. And depending on the word art, you could describe nearly everything here. And I made myself a little cheat sheet and just I don't want to get into that just to give you a little overview of what you could actually encode in there. As uh, just on the left side, you see all the different word, word classes that are available and all what different attributes they can all take. For example, 
what number are there, what person are there, what tense, what mood, what voice, nearly everything you can think of. And every, and Minota describes pretty explicitly what word needs to be encoded how. For example, the, in the top left, a proper or a common noun needs a word class, a gender, a number, a case, and a species, which does means how it is it a, a defined or indefined word or an unknown. Um, that's pretty easy. If you go to infinite forms of verbs, it gets quite complicated with tense, voice, gender, number, case, species, and you have to do that for every word you find in the manuscript, all over 2,000 of them. So it's quite a lot of work to put into that. Um, but there's a tool that makes it a bit easier. I'll talk about that in a minute. Just want to come to some, how you encode actually if there's a character missing or what, how actually it is encoded if there's an abbreviation. Um, and all starts for, um, I took, uh, on the top right, you see what part of text I took. And we start in the last character of the first line and then the first character of the next line. So we have a far and we I enhanced it a bit down here. And if we go into the, the drawing tool again, um, so we got a far and we start with this character and here's clearly missing something. In this case, an A. So in the facsimile edition, we see there's just a thorn. There's nothing else because nothing else is in the manuscript. But in the demographic edition, we added or we supplied, the tag is named supplied, for the, with the reason we restored it and we restored an A because it has to be an A and other editions also say it's an A and we can also encode which, where we got that information for from. And then the normalized edition, of course, it's a thorn again, uh, the thar supposed to be. And we get our line break, like we've seen before. And then we see down here the Han, or I will draw it onto it so you can see it a bit better. It's an H with a slash. Um, so it's a Han. In the facsimile edition, we say it's an abbreviation. AM is the short form for abbreviation. And we encode it exactly at this character. So it's exactly this character. In the diplomatic edition, we expand it and say it's Han as written. So we expand all abbreviations. In the normalized edition, it's just a Han. So it's not that spectacular because we know that word already. Um, and because that's a lot of work to get into to encode over 2,000 words plus about 320 different punctuations that are insert there. Um, Robert K. Paulson, it's part of the University of Bergen, said it's a side project, Minota Blitz. It's a way to quickly encode or blitz for fast encode with the Minota Blitz code, um, which we get into in a minute, um, or to transcribe really quickly the whole thing opposed to how that would work with an XML. So on the right side, we see uh, what we saw before, how we encode a Han after we say page break onto line one recto, line number seven, and then the lemma and the different choices. And how that would look um, in Minota Blitz, we can see down there, the one recto and the line seven are encoded. And then we, I will show it in a live demo in a minute, um, how the, H, the stroked age is expanded to a Han. Got also a tool for annotations, 
I don't think we have time today to get into that. And it got a graph and inventory. I will show that off later too. And then of course, an XML export to make it Minota compatible and export it into any format you like. Um, some words about my translation. Um, it's the first translation of this part of the manuscript. Um, I tried to scale as close to the source as possible to capture the essence of all, but still making it comprehensible because of what way where translation is simply not. Uh, breaks in punctuation are taken from Gundlauger's edition. Just they make sense. And uh, for the most part, at least in his edition, um, it's split into the narrative seven episodes that I've thought of before. And uh, sometimes the preceding closing parts of sentence are also important from that just to make it more clear what, what this belongs to and give some context. And with that, um, the, this part of the presentation is over and I will share a different screen to go into a live demonstration of the encoding of on folio one verso line 12 or what you can see below. We've seen that a few times. Um, just want to show off how you would translate that, uh, transcribe that in Minota Blitz so you get a feeling how quick or slow it could be. Let me just change the share to a different screen. And go over to Minota Blitz. And I hope you can all see the screen. I cheated a bit and prepared a lot for this because otherwise it would take quite a long time. So we are in the middle of the fourth episode in the discussion between where to send um, Maugus um, dead body, if send a letter lie in Strasbourg, um, like Rückwalder once, or send it on to Denmark like Matilda no, once. I guess she was in the know that he was not really dead, but she is a good actress. So um, to begin with, you have our graph inventory to our right. Um, so we say every character is encoded in different, if we type in A, how it should look in the facsimile edition and how it look, should look in the uh, diplomatic edition. Um, there's quite a lot in there, including some special characters like um, the superscript R or here the thorn with a bar or thorn with a cross or just some very special characters that are sometimes drawn from Unicode, sometimes from the movie project. But I think we should get started. So we are on the page two uh, verso, so the backside of the second leaf. And we are in line 12, which gives just a bit of context. And now we can go in and look, what's the first character? First character is obviously a, a thorn. And the next one is a Ooh, and with that, the word is finished. I'm, I already solved it, so it's a bit easier if you know what to look for. And we can compile this real quick. It's all in the web interface and look at what's, how it looks in the facsimile edition. So we are on page two verso in line 12, and here's our two in the diplomatic edition, also two vector, line 12, and the two. Um, the next character we see is a big S bit hard to see, but you have to trust me on that. So it's a big S. After that follows an E, an N, and this is, perhaps I should draw it in again, just to make it a bit clearer. That's a slanted 
ID with an add mark. So we enter a D because I encoded it that every D is a slanted D by default. Only if I wanted a slanted and slash D, I would have to type it in explicitly. And the next one, because if we compile it now, we see in the facsimile edition that all looks good. In the immaculate edition, the slanted D is replaced, and also the big S is replaced by a small s and a small d. And now comes the tricky part. We want to encode an abbreviation, which we do by putting it in brackets and then telling it's I placed at. So I encoded it as this is a shorthand for it should be an at. Um, and if I recompile it, probably shows us the wrong thing exactly, because we also have to tell him in what it should be extended. We know it's, well, I know it's supposed to mean sendir. So this abbreviation stands for the ER. And if we compile it now, go into facsimile edition, we see it added this little at sign in the diplomatic edition, it expands us to ER, which, and also slants it so it's correct. We then go on, and the next one is an M. Um, that stands for, it's a special abbreviation because it stands for man. And we could say, make us a slant, uh, a bar above that. And if we don't say anything, it just makes a bar because it's the default. If we compile that and go over to facsimile edition, we see it's an M with a slash over it. And in the diplomatic edition, it says man. The next one we have is an A with an accent mark. And the next one is a bit tricky. That's a tall F, a U with, an, with a slash above it again, which is a stand-in for an N. And the last one is a D again. There we have our fund. If we look over here, it's fund again. In the diplomatic edition, it's expanded to fund. The last thing I will encode because we are nearly over time is the one of the most special. It's this one is again one of those I talked earlier about. It's a H slash through it and a little hook in the top, which looks a bit like a cross. So it's called H cross, which also encoded H cross. And it should be expanded into a hands, so his. And if we expand that, then we see the code exactly at that character in the Dimactive Edition. All is italic and expanded into that. Um, we could go on, or we can download actually the XML. And if we move it over here, and I hope it's big enough actually. I can zoom in at the moment. We can see what he actually encoded it and transformed it into. You can see um, the body of the text. There's a lot of metadata up there. We can ignore that for now. What we start move this, make it more readable. Um, we start with the page break on line on page two verso, line break on line 12. Then we haven't filled in the lemma yet, so it's of course a question mark, and it's one of the word class unknown. Um, the first one, there's nothing special. 
And here we have the sendir. Um, this editor doesn't display the characters as well because he clearly thinks it's something different, but it's in code in the right way. Um, it's expanded into an ER and in the normalized version, it's sendir. For the man, we have an M and an abbreviation as a bar, just that's a shorthand for in this version for it's a bar above the character, expanded an un, so we have a man. Um, yeah, and so we could go on and encode every character in the whole manuscript in all three layers. And with that, I think we can go over to some questions if there are any. Um, hi, Phil. What particular font do you mean? The font I use in the presentation? Ah, the movie font. Um, that's Junicode I use actually. So Christoph, I have <clears throat> I have a few questions for you about the project as a whole. And if you maybe have some recommendations for beginners about just getting started with this type of work. So first I wanted to ask what what was it about this particular saga and this particular manuscript that you found that you that you found so appealing to to do this work because we you and I both know that this took a lot of human labor hours and this is a relatively and I say this kindly relatively short amount of text and just seeing how much how much um, time it took to edit, you know, just a few leaves compared to, let's say, like a long saga that has a hundred leaves to it. What was it in the selection process that it, that inspired you to look in this direction? And um, also, kind of on that same line, what were some of the greatest challenges and difficulties you found with this type of work? Um. To answer the first question, um, I wanted to do something in the lines of a reader saga. We talked about it at the beginning, and that's a field of research that's not that delved into, and it's a nice chance. The next part was to sum up all the potential manuscripts, and there were not that many left, since some of them are just 20 or 30 page uh, leaves, and that's just out of scope for anyone. Um, and then it both down to about three sagas, and Margot's saga was just uh, most interesting with the chess game and the whole structure as a family saga. Um, my advice for someone starting the project, um, think about if you really want to spend that much time thinking it into, because it is a lot of work and you have to bite through it. Um, also, technical understanding about XML and other programs should be in there 
because it is quite a technical project with encoding and getting everything to work. Um, and the last thing is uh, workflow, just optimizing everything to encode everything as fast as possible because it's a lot of work. Um, and Minotoblitz is a, and without it, I don't think I would have done it in that amount of time. Just cutting down the time, the repetitive tasks like encoding everything in XML is just a lot of work. And even in Minotoblitz, it's, it's a lot of text to go through. So getting into a rhythm and getting it done is the key part. So if you if you were to continue with this type of, of textual editing, do you think that, and I don't mean tomorrow because you have a well-deserved break in front of you <laughs> for the, as long as you want, but if you were to choose another work and continue um, uh, with the with the XML editing, which which work would you choose? Do you have any in mind? Or are you kind of like, uh, maybe I'll think about it after I've had a chance to take a break for a while. So I'll take a break, definitely. But um, in the same shelf mark, there's a, we had now had the beta manuscript. And there's also an alpha and gamma manuscript. So um, one of those is the alpha is somewhere in the USA. And there are no pictures available. But for the gamma, it's just one leaf. And um, if the condition is favorably, I would think about encoding that also to have both because it could fit into some sections that are missing right now. And I also know the text in the hand. So that would help definitely. That is a project I will look into in the future. So one one last question that I have is, um, We've you we are still waiting on a response, kind of as far as I understand it. But what are the avenues for publishing this type of work? So I just want to make it clear that there are avenues. Um, so um, yeah, go so, ahead. Um, I'm currently talking with the um, Minota people over there, um, and they still um, want to give me feedback on what is missing in my XML file. If there's something I need to encode afterwards to getting it published there. But that was be the first avenue. Um, also, Robert has a site up where he publishes um, in a different format, but it's also possible with Minota Blitz to encode it for that kind of format. That's another avenue I'm looking into. And there's one more question here in the chat from Phil. Um, yeah, we can. Uh, I played around with some colors and some in the graphics program until I got a version that I could actually see a bit more than before. There's a, probably a more professional way to in doing that. And there are actually studies gone into that, but I didn't have time to really dive deep into that. That would something else I would probably be looking into to build a tool set to just enhance the visibility of the script. All right, so going once, going twice, do we have any other questions? Anyone want to ask Christoph about this uh, absolutely incredible project, by the way? Um, it's it's truly inspiring to work on this, this type of project. And we have another guest here in attendance who has also done a similar project, which was brutally 
painstaking labor of the same variety. So it's really cool that I've been able to work with with some students on the on these projects. So I, I wanted to thank you, Christoph, for hanging in there and enduring this 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 project that you've you've undertaken. I think it's it's been a great pleasure and. Um, yeah. Even though we yeah. complained a lot about the project now painstakingly much work, it is it's actually fun to do it. Exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. So and be able to in the end look at the whole project. I can just real quickly um share how that actually looks in the mm -hmm. finished version. So um just make the full screen. This is the I mean the blitz version of the finished facsimile edition. And it's a lot of pages and a lot of work, but actually everything is encoded in here. Every page, including all the things that are drawn from other editions. So all the facsimile edition is there, all the diplomatic edition is there digitally. And it's a lot of text, but it's fun to see and really rewarding to seeing everything is done and everything is annotated. And you really encoded a piece of history. All right, so I want to thank you all for attending, and I think we'll let Christoph get on with his evening now. And yeah, so thank you, Christoph. It was it was a great pleasure. I hope to hear from you all soon. So have a good one, everyone. Thank you all. Bye.